0: You're listening to the CyberWire Network, powered by N2K.
1: At least 10% of the time, even if you pay off the ransom demand, they don't restore your data or your systems, and then you're still liable. And also, if you do pay off, then quite often you're put on the stupid list, and then you see attacks from others in the future.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with John Pescatori from the Sands Technology Institute We're going to be talking about whether or not you should pay off a ransomware demand. All right, Joe, let's uh, kick things off with some stories here. Why don't you start for us?
2: I will, Dave. Mine comes from Susan Hogan, who's at NBC4 in Washington, D.C., Mm. which is a local station for us. I grew up Mm -hmm. watching them. There is a woman who is a dermatologist in Bowie, Maryland. Her name is Dr. Melanie Macklin, Mm. and she noticed some charges on her credit card that she wanted to dispute, and these charges were coming from Facebook advertising. So perhaps because she's a dermatologist, she has a business. So maybe she had done some business with Facebook in the past purchasing advertising, and now they're charging her card, and these are not legitimate charges. So she wants right. to call Facebook. So she goes to Facebook and searches for Facebook customer service number. And guess what she finds? She finds one.
0: Now, First of all, I'm, I'm shocked that... That that's possible.
2: Right. But go on. Well, and and you would be right to be shocked, Dave, because (laughs) Facebook does not have a customer service number. (laughs) They, They just don't. I've looked around for ways to get in touch with Facebook customer service, and it's very difficult to do this, even Mm -hmm. if you're uh, doing something online. I don't even know if you're a customer of theirs, like if you've actually given them money, if there's a way that you can call somebody and talk to them. This is why I don't think I would ever do business with Facebook, period. (laughs) Okay. Um, Just because I can't, there's no single ringable neck for me. It's a big cloud of people that you wind up screaming into the void, and I don't like doing that. So, But Dr. Macklin found this customer service number. And when she calls the number, the person answers Facebook customer support. And she tells the guy about her problem. And the guy says, oh, you need to install an app on your phone. Hmm. So she installs this app on her phone that the guy recommends. And then he connects to her phone and she watches as he starts like opening her, her Facebook app. And then she opens her Instagram app. And then this guy opens up her cash app and transfers over $6,000 out of her checking account to himself.
0: Wow. While she's watching it happen.
2: While she's watching it happen, yeah, in a, in a series of a number of transactions. And eventually she has to uninstall that app to get him to stop doing this, to, to take the control away from him. Hmm. Uh, and and during that time, this guy made off with about $6,000 of Dr. Macklin's money. Wow. Now, there are still these listings on Facebook for these customer support numbers. So guess what I did, Dave? <laughs> oh, dear. I Go fired <laughs> up a Google Voice number, and, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and I started calling them, right? I found two okay. numbers on, on Facebook. And what was interesting is, you know how when you dial out, sometimes it will say, okay, you're calling into this number, right? It, yeah. It'll give you a company name. One of those company names was Norton technical support or customer support. So this is a series of scams. Nobody answered the phone calls, but one guy did call me back. And when he he talked to me, I started asking him questions. And I said, I'm trying to reach Facebook technical support. He goes, oh, this is Facebook technical support. I said, you work for Facebook. He goes, no, no, we're a third party provider. I'm like, okay, what's your business model? How do you make money? And he says, well, you will pay us for this service. And I'm like, okay, and how much do I pay you? And he goes, well, that's for the technician to determine. I said, okay, this sounds kind of scammy. And that was the end of the call. (laughs) Wow. But these guys are out there. They're putting their numbers up on Facebook as Facebook customer support. You're calling them, and then somehow they're scamming you out of uh, either money for technical service fees, which I guess you could argue may be a legitimate business model. But this, what happened to Dr. Macklin is definitely not. This guy stole six grand from her. And um, Do we have any idea what
0: kind of app that they were using that would allow you to have remote control over
2: your mobile device? The story didn't cover this, but I imagine it's like a customer support app. So, like, when your mom calls, you can say, go install this app, mom, and then let me do that, right? I, right, I never do that. Right. I never tell them to do that because I don't want this thing sitting residually on their systems. In fact, I've not been a big fan of these apps, even when I was uh, providing, you know, Joe's Unlimited Lifetime tech support to my in-laws who live (laughs) far away, that would have made my job really easy, but I never did it because I just didn't want them to be vulnerable that way. However you want to handle it, let's handle it, but I don't want to install that app. I really want to say thanks to Dr. Macklin for coming forward on this. A lot of people would not do that. A lot of people would be embarrassed about this. I'm sure that she's not proud of it, I mean, but, she is she is going beyond what's what's embarrassing and got in touch with uh, Sue Hogan over at NBC4 and has shown up on the news talking about this. That needs to happen more. That's courageous, mm-hmm. and I really, really, really appreciate it. So thank you, Dr. Macklin, for coming forward. This is an educated woman. She has a, a medical degree, and she got scammed. This happens to everybody. Mm-hmm. All, they're, all they're looking for is the right opportunity for it to happen.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, if
2: we look at our take-homes here... I guess
0: there's a couple lessons. The first is that these companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon, they try to do everything they can to not uh, have a a phone number for you to get a hold of them with, right?
2: Yeah, they just want your money. They don't want to bother talking to you. It's the perfect <laughs> business model, right? Right, right. People so, shuffle yeah, in, empty like, their pockets, and shuffle, shuffle out. It's almost yeah, like a boy, Business
0: would be great if it weren't for all these pesky customers, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. And then I guess the other thing is if somebody's asking you to install an app on your phone or your computer, I mean,
2: that is about as bright a red flag as there is, right? Yes, agreed. Agreed. Universally. And Dr. Macklin is probably not very technical in, in her skills. She's a medical doctor. I don't know that that would have sent up a red flag for her, but uh, it certainly would have sent up a red flag for most of us. But yeah, never install software that you didn't ask for. And mm-hmm. if someone on a customer support line says you need to install software, that should be a red flag. I've never, ever done that. And actually, I don't think, know that I've even been asked to do that. But if I was asked to do that, that would be a that would be an end of the phone call kind of thing.
0: Right, right. Yeah, so worth spreading the word about that. You know, let you Indeed. let your folks, your your more vulnerable friends and family know. Just a good reminder not to not to do that, not to do right. that. Wow, what an interesting story! All right, well, uh, my story this week comes from Jan Kopriva over at the Sands Technology Institute. Interesting story. It's titled Fishing Kits as Far as the Eye Can See," and really, what uh, they're unpacking here is the fact that. Fishing kits, which are, you know, these, these tools that you can buy to mm. spin up your own fishing campaign. I don't know about you, Joe, but I would have thought that this is the kind of thing that you'd have to venture into the dark web to right. find on some of those kinds of forums. And the research that they've done here at SANS shows that, no, these things are pretty much out in the open. What struck me as particularly interesting is that they could find many of these fishing kits out for sale on YouTube. Really? Yeah. I've seen YouTube used for things like illegal serial numbers for software, things like that. You know, the okay. or hacked, you know what I mean? People spread around serial numbers for software they don't own, right?
2: Right. Because that's easy to do because it's hard to Google it, right? Because right. Because you're looking at images. In other words, Google would have to index the entire video doing uh, OCR on it. And that takes time. And Google may not do that.
0: Yeah, and, and I think also YouTube has a kind of a low threshold in it. Unless it's right. copyrighted music, YouTube yes. has a low threshold <laughs> for
2: what they search and or high threshold. I don't know, whatever it would be, but you know let, what I mean. Let um, me ask you a question, Dave. <laughs> did they find that these fishing kits had YouTube advertising on it? Because if they did, why would YouTube take these videos down? They're making money off it.
0: Mm. The article doesn't say either way. I would suspect if I was someone selling one of these kits, I would not enable YouTube advertising because I wouldn't want to draw any additional scrutiny to what I'm doing here.
2: Right. Um, And how are you going to collect that money anyway?
0: Right. These kits are affordable. uh, They're easy to get. And I just thought that was remarkable that I I guess the boldness of these folks who are out there uh, selling these things. Yeah, I don't know if they're just foolish (laughs) <laughs> or they feel like they're beyond the reach of the law, which m- m- may be the case. Maybe, right. Um, yeah. Well, and that's the thing. You know, we see every couple months we'll see the, the Justice Department or someone, the FBI, you know, working with international partners. Right. Uh, we'll, we'll round up a, a, f- a bunch of people or shut down a forum or it turns out that they had been running the forum, you know, for the past few months. They'd secretly <laughs> taken it over. So
2: Right. And they have a bunch a- of the- IP addresses of people.
0: Right. And, and I think that's a good message to send to these folks that you better be looking
2: over your shoulder because you don't know who's who's watching. There's an interesting graphic in here about what the phishing uh, the kits are going after. About 13% of them are going after PayPal. And then 11% mm. are going after Microsoft 365 accounts.
0: Yeah, which is interesting because I suppose that rather than being a direct thing, in other words, you get in someone's PayPal account, you can get their money. You get in someone's right amazon account you can buy stuff but right with office 365 seems like that is a stepping stone along the way to a business email compromise or, or something exactly else my like thinking that. as
2: well when you're looking for a big payout that's where you start you start with getting into someone's email account
0: Hmm. yep exactly so, uh, just an interesting insight, again, from the folks over at uh, Sands Technology Center. Uh, this is from their Internet Storm Center, which is, uh, they have a daily InfoSec podcast that's quite good. Our friend Johannes Ulrich hosts that. Uh, mm-hmm. Worth a listen. All right. Well, uh, interesting story there. We'll have a link to that in our show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day.
2: Dave, our catch of the day comes from Sawyer Dickey or someone who calls himself Sawyer Dickey. He's a moderator on our ScamBait, and he received this message. And we're going to read just the, uh, the first message because I think it's pretty good. We're going to put a link to this in the show notes. Uh, you should go read this because he does a little bit of uh, back and forth with this scammer, and it's, it's pretty funny. But the exchange is rather long. I thought that the first message that Sawyer received was pretty funny. So I recommended everybody go out and read the entire exchange. It's it's very good. But Dave, why don't you read this email?
0: All right. Here we go. Dear sir and madam, this message is from the Department of Blacklist Removal Office USA in Nigeria. Why we decided to communicate with you today is because we've discovered that you are pursuing too many transactions in internet in which all are failing you after wasting much money in pursuing them. Some of these transactions are fake and some are real, but the reason you have not received any fund is because your name is in US Blacklist, which makes it impossible for you to send money out and also receive your inheritance funds out of the country or within. So it is better you stop wasting your money in the name of receiving your inheritance funds until your name is removed from the blacklist and enter into US Whitelist. Blacklist is a list of people or groups regarded as unacceptable or untrustworthy and often marked down for exclusion or blocked from receiving huge amounts of funds outside the country or from within the country. Okay, that's the first period at the end of the sentence right there. (laughs) (laughs) It goes on. So if you want to remove your name from the blacklist and place it in American whitelist, then contact this office or you keep having problems receiving your funds after sending so much money to them. The requirement for removing your from the blacklist are as follow your full name, your home address, cell phone number, your occupation, country, your international passport or driver's license or state ID, Above all, you are obligated to pay the sum of $50 for the insurance of removing your name from the blacklist. But please do not contact us if you know that you cannot pay this fee. But if you are willing to remove your name from the blacklist, then kindly purchase an iTunes card of $50 and immediately and after that shall transfer your total of $3.5 million into your bank account or any means by which you want to receive your fund. While this Department of U.S. Blacklist Removal Office is located in Nigeria, is because Nigeria is origin country of your fund. Thanks Mr. Donald Anderson, director of Blacklist Removal, USA.
2: Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. this is a great one. And uh, <laughs> Sawyer goes on to say he's unable to pay the fi- the $50 insurance fee because his name is on the blacklist and he goes back and forth with his scammer for a, a little while. It's pretty good. <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously this is just a trying to scam somebody out of a $50 gift card and at the same time build a collection of personally identifiable information that they can sell. Uh, yeah. It, it's it's pretty straightforward what this scam is, but uh, it's, I love it. It's so poor, poorly written.
0: <laughs> it, it really is. Your cell is, phone number. I wonder number? what the deal is with that. There's never like these run on sentences that just go on and on and on. Yeah. And I wonder that, if they're just feeding it through some sort of translation engine that... I don't know. Isn't good. Isn't good at that. Maybe um, I don't know. Maybe someone who knows linguistics better than we do can uh, give us a little hint as to yeah why that happens so often. All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with John Pescatori. He is from the SANS Technology Institute, our our second SANS mention on the show today, right? Right. Um, And our conversation focused on this notion of whether or not it's a good idea to pay off the ransomware demand, the pros and cons of that. Uh, Here's my conversation with John Pescatori.
1: You know, there's various (laughs) types of security incidents we've had over the years, sort of. Early in the stage of every new technology and and certainly early in our use of the Internet, denial of service were the first types of attacks where bad guys or curious people would find ways to crash stuff. And and then all of a sudden, our customers couldn't reach us or our employees couldn't reach the Internet. The the Morris worm of 1989 was a denial (laughs) of service incident. And a lot of malware attacks result in just crashing computers and are essentially denial of service attacks. Then as the attackers get more sophisticated, we've over the years started to see data breaches where they're stealing something, typically data. Could be intellectual property, could be credit card numbers, could be healthcare numbers, anything that uh, has monetary value or it can be sold on a black market or used to commit cybercrime. crime. So we, we've had data breaches. And so over the years, we've figured out ways to defend against denial of service and figured out ways to detect breaches by noticing if data is flying out through the perimeter in ways it normally doesn't or it never should. And ransomware came along and used many of the same malware type techniques to get in, but then had very different consequences. It had denial of service consequences, essentially. It it encrypts all your files and you can't do business, or it encrypts key executables and your systems no longer work, such as happened to Baltimore, or happened to uh, the uh, uh, railway system in San Francisco. But the added component, the like totally new part, is this idea of extortion, is saying, we're hurting you right now, we can make it better if you make this payment. And that is always a decision that's outside the scope of the security team. And it's also something that's sort of reinvigorated, I guess would be the word, efforts I've been doing or interests I've had in looking into cyber insurance. Uh, as people start to say, well, wait a minute, doesn't insurance pay off on extortion demands? So the the, the key things that have happened is, as the bad guys have uh, focused more on ransomware are, well, three things. Two the, two, the two I've already mentioned are one, it's sort of a similar style of attack with different consequences. Second thing, it brings in this issue of extortion demands, which all of a sudden changes the response. And the the third thing is this uh, cyber insurance issue, which is sort of reinvigorates. Well, is it cheaper to just get insurance to pay off the the uh, cost, or is there any way we can actually prevent this and self insure essentially?
0: And what about this trend we've seen more and more lately where the ransomware folks are not only locking up your files, but they're exfiltrating them and and threatening to release them publicly?
1: Yeah, that's happened before the ransom demands in in past years, just so they could prove they really had the data. And that's Mm -hmm. happened in, in breaches as well, where there's been some cases of that. So the other part that comes out of this is Relatively often, it's very hard to get statistics on much of this, but at least 10% of the time, even if you pay off the ransom demand, they don't restore your data or your systems, and then you're still liable. And also, if you do pay off, then quite often you're put on the stupid list, and then you see attacks from others in the future. So there's a lot of sort of variance here on what actually happens, whether you pay off or don't pay off, or the types and amount of ransomware demands they make if they make a very small. Monetary demand may be more tempting to pay off if they make a very large one, obviously not. And then the other thing that happens is almost all businesses, all large businesses, typically have some form of insurance around executives that might include kidnapping of executives. And so there are some insurance payoff issues. There's also the standard issues of do we we notify law enforcement or not that start to happen once uh, any ransomware or exposure demand is brought into play. You
0: know, it strikes me that uh, it seems like if you ask law enforcement, you know, the conversations I've had with folks from the FBI and other agencies, they will say, do not pay the ransom. But I guess for a lot of organizations, I mean, it's more complicated than that. The decision making there isn't necessarily black and white.
1: Well, the first thing is that here recently, in the past couple of months of 2020, the FBI has changed their guidance. They have actually said that's the standard recommendation, but all circumstances are different and businesses have to make their own decisions. So the FBI has sort of taken a step back from that standard advice in the physical kidnapping days, I don't think they've changed it. In this world of cyber extortion, I, they, they have changed it. But it is definitely an executive-level decision. You know, it is not a chief security officer decision, obviously, unless he's going to open his wallet and pay for it with his own money versus <laughs> the company's money. Um, so there's a lot of analysis that has to go in. And that's something myself and uh, uh, an instructor at SANS, Ben Wright, who's actually a lawyer, is we're looking into in a project for a research we'll be putting out uh probably early next year.
0: Let's discuss the insurance side of this. You know, we see more and more companies are getting insurance that specifically covers cyber events. Does ransomware generally fall into that?
1: Well, here's where everything gets very complicated. So first off, one reason why more companies are getting standalone cyber security insurance policy is the insurance carriers are starting to change all their other policies to remove any coverage of cyber incidents. So it wasn't unusual to see other forms of liability insurance or other types of uh, standard business insurance policies have some coverage of cyber incidents. And then you started to see the insurance carriers fight back and say, no, that was an act of cyber war and your existing policy does not cover acts of war or no they exploited a vulnerability that existed before you signed the policy, and that's a pre-existing condition. So the, the insurers, in order to remove their own liability to claims against general purpose insurance, have started to thin down those policies and force anybody who wants cyber insurance to get a standalone policy. So that a lot of the growth in, in these policies is, is almost manufactured by the, the uh, insurance industry. And, uh, you know, some other things in my looking into sort of the costs and payoffs of this type of thing, I've tried to find some statistics. So from the Deloitte & Touche report in that those typical property and casualty insurance type policies for every dollar of premiums the insurance companies collect, they pay out about 60 to 70 cents per dollar in payments. Mm. The other 30% is their profit, and the investment of the premiums before something bad happens is additional profit. On the cyber policies, they're only paying out about 23 cents for every dollar of premium collected. So you see these these policies are priced pretty high compared to how they price property or casual insurance because of a lot of the uncertainties about what they will have to pay or not have to pay, or if ransomware hits one of our clients, is that same ransomware going to hit 100 of our clients called aggregation or accumulation risk? So it's a it's a very strange world. It, it, the pricing in cyber insurance is basically called market pricing. It's like lobster. If they caught a lot of lobster today, <laughs> lobster's cheap. If they didn't catch a lot of lobster, lobster's expensive.
0: Right, as opposed to being based on you know a hundred years of of uh, of history of, of you know this. I'm thinking of things like insurance for fires or hurricanes or floods. You know things we've been tracking for a long time.
1: That's often this this idea that there's no actuarial tables. You know, we can give life insurance policies because we know how long people live. So there's definitely not as much or not as much data that's a big problem in cybersecurity in general but i think mm-hmm. there's a bigger issue at play here i've been doing a lot of talks with government agencies and and uh, big enterprises on things like artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms where you know now that computers can beat humans in chess and go and do all this cool object recognition type stuff and character recognition You know, there's a lot of hype out there that uh, AI machine learning will solve all these security problems. We won't need as many people. Well, the reality is that most problems like will a building burn down or not? What's the next best move in a chess game are bounded problems. We we, we know how well a building is built and if it was built with fire retardant materials or not because there's building codes that say it has to be. There's building codes about fire sprinklers and things. In chess, The pieces can only move in certain directions. The board has boundaries and the players take turns. Well, in cybersecurity, none of that applies. There are no strength of materials. Each piece of software is a unique piece of craftsmanship itself. Nobody knows how strong it is or even how strong it needs to be. The attackers, they can make the horse do 100 moves and then turn right instead of left or go diagonally. They can do whatever they want. They don't have to wait for their turn to go. Uh, so it's a very different problem. So that the, this idea that, well, over time, they'll accumulate actuarial data, I really don't think is going to happen. I think it's it, the problem is much closer to the health insurance problem, that new virus and coronaviruses come along and novel ones that we've never seen before. The body doesn't have any. So we have healthcare data, but we have similar problems in in healthcare and how health insurance works. And And in the health insurance world or in the medical world, everybody knows and every doctor preaches, you're better off Um, Preparing or getting, staying healthy and avoiding illness, than you are just relying on insurance and medicine to deal with the illness afterwards, and and that's sort of the the part that's been missing in a lot of cybersecurity approaches. And and this type of insurance, cybersecurity insurance, does not transfer liability, doesn't cap liability. It merely reduces the cost. You know, you let's use Baltimore as an example. Baltimore, after their what they said was an eighteen million dollar ransomware incident, they went out and bought. Uh, cyber security, two cybersecurity policies for 20 million dollars of coverage and they paid 835,000 for a year's worth of that coverage and it had 2 million of deductibles so they they've now are, are safe they'll get up to 16 million dollars benefit you know 18 million dollars less 2 million deductible but if they had a 20 million dollar incident or a 40 million dollar incident the cost will just keep rising so compared to car insurance or home property insurance where you get repaid the full amount of what you're insuring in health insurance and, and in cyber insurance, you're really only getting a portion back. You're not getting your leg back if it if it rots off, you're getting some money towards the operation to remove your leg. So mm-hmm. cybersecurity insurance can't be seen as an as a alternative to good security hygiene and protecting yourself. And that that's where the focus of what we're looking at here lies.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean I guess it's a more of a, a backstop, another layer of protection if you're, uh, you know, if, you, if the other things fail, if your backups fail, for example, then maybe, you know, your insurance can help ease that pain some.
1: Yeah, and, and in, in many instances, it makes sense because if what you've done is say, well, we've done the basic security hygiene things, so... We would really have to make a number of mistakes, you know, a number of multiple things would have to go wrong for us for an attack to succeed against us. And with insurance, we can minimize, you know, or reduce the cost of that impact. That may make financial sense in some cases. Um, it may not make sense for for small businesses, for example. Um, the policies are often cheaper because small businesses usually have less costly incidents, they're smaller targets, they're often not targeted, but the cost of keeping themselves secure is often higher for, uh, as a percentage of their revenue for smaller businesses. So for smaller businesses, uh, $1,000 a year for 200,000 of protection, uh, of coverage may make sense. For a large company that has to pay 20 million a year, let's look at the ransomware attacks from a couple of years ago that hit Maersk and uh, the big FedEx unit that they had a publicly announced $300 million incidents and that was all because they did not patch known vulnerable microsoft software and other software known vulnerable software they failed in basic security hygiene in a big way if they were to carry 300 million of of cyber insurance that would be have cost them 100 times more than it would have cost them just to patch things so you know so at a border i do a lot of board of directors briefings and this topic comes up and you know a lot of it is You can't justify insurance if you're not doing the basic minimums to keep yourself healthy. Nobody's going to give a smoker who smokes 10 packs of cigarettes a day lung cancer insurance. And and if you're you're not doing basic security hygiene, the premiums and deductibles uh, you'll be paying on top of the cost of the incidents. And it, it makes no sense.
0: Yeah, I like to use uh, public health as, a, as an analogy for a lot of this stuff as well. And it, one of the things that strikes me is that you know, you can do all of those things. You can wash your hands. You can uh, you know, try not to, to uh, be near sick people and all those things. But sometimes you're still going to get a
1: cold. The smart part about that is that's exactly what insurance is supposed to be for, unlikely occurrences. Mm. So if you take away all the likely ways you're going to get a cold – or get a flu or get the coronavirus. Right. then insurance makes sense because now you're trying to cover the unlikely events. Similarly in cybersecurity, you know, there's a thing out there called the critical security controls. SANS supported it, uh, kept it going for years. It started in NSA. It's its own standalone nonprofit uh, thing now under the Center for Internet Security. That's all about basic security hygiene. And the Australian government adopted a, a slightly modified version of it. And they showed that just by doing four of the 20 basic security hygiene things, They were able to avoid 85% of targeted attacks. They're ignoring the simple malware that's easy to stop, but targeted attacks, custom malware, ransomware, just doing these four basic security hygiene things of patching, reducing privileges, and segmenting networks and a few other things, four, four things, avoid 85% of these big attacks, now you start to say, now only 15% of the bad things could ever happen to us. And that's starting to be in the realm of where you start to say cybersecurity insurance might make sense to cover these unlikely events. Now you you don't buy um, insurance for losing your car keys or something you do every week. You get it for very unlikely things that if it does happen, you 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 need some recompense. All right, Joe, what do you think? I thought that was a really
2: good interview, Dave. Some interesting points that were made in the interview. Ransomware, first off, I want to talk about ransomware in general. It's on the rise because it works. And if you compare it to the exfiltration-only business model, you know, where I steal your data and then sell it, uh, a malicious Mm -hmm. actor can sell your data, but there is no one to whom your data is more valuable than you. Hmm. So if Mm -hmm. I can deny you access to your data and then i i really can capitalize on that and that's why this works and maybe i'm stating the obvious here i have a real pension for doing that by the way um but it's really very simple this stuff works because this information is terribly important to the people that that have it and when it gets taken away a lot of times the easiest thing for them to do or the fastest thing or maybe even the only thing is to pay the ransom yeah i like what john talks about when he says the ramifications of paying he says uh First off, you may be out the money and and not have any benefit, right? They may not restore your system. That's a real risk. He calls it the stupid list (laughs) that you pay and then they put you out on some list or let everybody know in their community, hey, this guy paid the ransom. So they have the money to pay and they're willing to pay and they like paying ransoms. So that makes you a target right? Not paying the ransom. Like, I don't think anybody else is going to try to attack Baltimore City because they incurred $38 million in costs rather than paying uh, a ransom that was less than $100,000. So Mm. that's probably not going to pay off again in the future. And and now they have the insurance. So who knows? Who knows what will happen in the future with that? We'll have to watch, see if they get hit with another uh, cybersecurity event. Uh, It is interesting that he talks about reducing your risk being easy towards the end of the interview. And that there's like four things you do to reduce your risk by 80%, 85%. Uh, And that was true in the case of Baltimore City as well. If they had just patched the systems from a known vulnerability, they would not have had that ransomware attack. It wouldn't have happened. It's also interesting that the FBI is changing their stance on this. You know, They would say in, in the old days, or last year, never pay the ransom. And now they're saying, that's an executive decision you have to make. That's an interesting change from the FBI. I'm not at all surprised that insurance companies are isolating their cyber insurance to its own product. And I am kind of surprised by the payouts, You know, the uh, property and casualty payout, usually for every dollar of insurance money they take in, they pay out 60 to 70 cents. And with cyber, they're only paying out 23 cents. I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, because I understand that there's a risk with a ransomware attack that can be widespread.ing He talks about that. You know, it's not really the same kind of thing. You know, if you worry about a casualty event, let's say like your car insurance, you have a catastrophic car insurance event and you're an insurance company, one of your insured people, one of your customers is going to run over a pedestrian and that's going to cost you, right? But when right. that happens, that doesn't increase the risk of that happening with like hundreds of other of your insured customers. But with a ransomware attack, imagine the situation where there's a zero day out there and there's a ransomware operator out there exploiting that zero day, and you get hit with the first ransomware attack, and now you get hit with 100 other ransomware attacks. And mm-hmm. that changes the calculus of how you cover this immensely. And John has a great point here. The problem of cybersecurity is absolutely unbounded. This is limited only by the creativity of the malicious actors not by any rules or anything. There are no rules. It's not something you can plan for. It
0: strikes me as being kind of like catastrophic weather events. You know, you know here in our hometown, you know, here in my hometown in, in Ellicott City, you know, you have these hundred-year floods, right? How are you going to plan for that? I mean, they don't happen very often, but when they do, they're catastrophic.
2: There is one thing John said I want to caution the listener about. He said the small business may not be targeted. I don't think that small businesses should take that as you know, a chance to wipe their forehead and go, "Whoo, I'm, I'm off the hook. Oh, no, yeah. you're not off the hook. Um, these guys are still targeting you, and they're targeting you more and more because these larger organizations have cybersecurity budgets that make it very difficult for malicious actors to get in. Smaller companies do not have that. Therefore, it's a lot easier for them to get in. The flip side is something that John said is absolutely correct, is your, your assets are a lot less valuable to these malicious actors. They're easier to insure. And these malicious actors are not going to spend months trying to get into a small business. They're going to they're going to try something quick and easy, see if it works. And if it doesn't, they're going to move on. Yeah, they're not going to waste a lot of time going after you. That's true. But to say that you're you're less likely to be targeted. I'm not on board with that. That's one thing I'm going to I'm going to disagree with John on. But um, I I don't think he meant it to be reassuring. I just want to make it lucidly clear that small business people should still be vigilant.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think uh, to me, it's uh, you hear folks say, well, I don't have anything of value. You know, why would they come yeah. after me? And, no, and you do true. have if you, 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 you have, have something of, of, value, of value. Trust me. Yeah, you have a credit card. Right.
2: That's a value. Do you have a computer? That's a value. Is there data that you care about on your computer? And malicious actors have ways of monetizing all of that. They, yeah. So, yes, you have something of value. The other thing is you've got to remember you're dealing with uh, a lot of times you're dealing like in a catch of the day. You're dealing with somebody from Nigeria. You know, the median income in Nigeria is around $2,700 a year. Hmm. Um, so if I can scam people out of $2,700, I'm doing okay in Nigeria. Right,
0: right. Hmm. Yeah. I don't, need to, I don't need to
2: commit a lot of cybercrime to, to live a good life in, in some of these countries.
0: Right. All right. Well, our thanks to John Pescatori from the Sands Technology Institute for joining us. A really interesting conversation